<laughs> so great. I hope you enjoyed that video a lot. The camera team here is laughing and we're, we're enjoying that. It's true because it's so hard to know what day it is. And I'm sure you're feeling a sense of fatigue like the rest of us. You're ready for this to end. And I'm here to remind you, it's, it's not far away before this is all over. And God's got it all under control. He certainly knows the timing of when it was going to start. He knows the timing of when it was going to end and when it's going to end. And we're just being patient and waiting for that. But in the meantime, I'm so glad we get to join together and do church together and, and be part of what God has provided for us with technology that we can do virtual church. I'm sure like me, um, you're part of the worship that just took place that Michael led us through. But as you were watching on your screen, you probably noticed from the different camera angles, the empty auditorium. A great worship team up here, but nobody in the seats, and you're in your seats at home. So we're collectively still worshiping together, but we really look forward to the day when we get to worship with you physically together, because the fatigue is, is real. It's going on. We might as well just admit it. We're ready for it to be over, and soon it will be, and we really look forward to having you here back in the building. So whether you're at home by yourself right now, whether you're one, or maybe there's 10 of you, we don't know, but we're together. We're together as a church family. So I look forward to working through what we're going to work through this morning. The, the sense of fatigue, we'll pray about that in just a minute. Uh, but I want to remind you of what a great thing that you're doing if you're continuing to support the church. You heard Jeff refer to people who are making masks and those who are collecting food. But as many of you who are still giving faithfully financially, thank you for doing that. The, the church has not seen an, a decrease in giving. As a matter of fact, things have stayed stable. And so it's allowed us to be able to help people with paying bills and buying food and groceries for individuals who need that. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for being part of that. But also more than that, the gifts that you're giving are helping us to support the work of the church with missions and also this technology to be able to stream I can point you to individuals who came to faith in Jesus in just this last week and in the last two weeks because they've been able to stream the New Hope services and they've been part of what we're doing here together. And I, I just want to encourage you to be continuing in that, even though you might be feeling this sense of fatigue. I'm going to ask you if you have your Bible with you right now this morning to go to 1 Peter where we've been for this series in, in chapter 3, 1 Peter 3.15. You'll see this verse come up on the screen and it'll remind you of what we've been talking about through this short reasoning series. Let's just read it together. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. And that, that means reason. To everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I told you last week it's remarkable that that verse was written by the very one who desperately, <clears throat> excuse me, struggled as a young man to make a defense for why he was with Jesus. People came to him while he was around a campfire and, and said, Peter, you look like the individual who's part of Jesus' group. And he denied it three times. You might remember that. And he finally ended up cursing people. And here you find him in 1 Peter 3.15 as an old man looking back on the young man, Peter, and saying, don't be caught. Don't be caught without an answer. Don't be caught with your guard down. I did that. I know what that's like because you never know when someone's going to approach you and ask you to explain the hope that's in you. 
We're going to continue with that this morning. We're going to continue with this anchor verse of 1 Peter 3.15 as we examine the resurrection this morning. We examine the validity of God's word and why you can believe it and why you can look at archaeological evidence last week. And this morning, we're going to look at the resurrection. We're going to look at it through the lens of why you should know and believe in the resurrection and why you can really, in a very valid way, share it with other individuals who are in your life. Before we do anything of going further, I want to pray with you, but here's a a warning for you. If you're a parent of a child right now, the first three minutes coming out of prayer is going to be very graphic, and I just want to give you a heads up in advance because I'm going to describe the crucifixion scene. So if you've got a, a child in your home whom you don't want to hear the, the graphic, gory details. I just want to give you a heads up for the first three minutes after prayer. It's going to be very surreal. Let's pray together. We'll ask God to illuminate our minds, and I'll uh, push forward with this text with you. Let's do that together. Father, I thank you for every single person who is part of what we're doing this morning. You have a a purpose in which you've steered us into this virus, and you're accomplishing your purposes. We know it's taking place around the world, that your kingdom is expanding. There's nothing that happens without you, you, Father, as a sovereign God, allowing it. So even when we look at things that are very, very hard, we look at it and try and understand through our framework of why but we trust you in the midst of it. You do things that go beyond our reasoning, yet you have a purpose in it, and and through these things you expand your kingdom, you accomplish all your good pleasure. So Father, I pray right now that you wouldn't allow anything to end, and I know that you wouldn't, unless it's accomplished all your good pleasure. So what we're asking for, Father, is that you would help us to do our part, whatever we're supposed to be doing in the midst of this, to dedicate ourselves to your purposes. And for those of us right now who are part of this broadcast, God, I pray that you would use this period of time, that we would use ourselves to dedicate ourselves to the purpose of understanding you better, understanding who we are better, where you need to push on our hearts, where you need to do surgery on us, God, Pray that you would do that. Cause your word to come alive now, even where it's painful, even where it's hard for us. Push, Lord God. I pray that you would do that in the magnificent name of Jesus, our Savior. And all God's people said, amen. If you had been physically present at the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm certain you would have covered your eyes, would have covered your ears, probably would have screamed audibly, most likely would have fallen to your knees, pounding the ground, sobbing. More than likely, you would begin to convulse and tremble, and very likely, you would vomit. The scene is that visceral. The the sobbing and the wailing that would come from you would be uncontrollable. 
Besides the agony of the excruciating pain of being scourged with a cat of nine tails, they pierced a man's arms with steel and ran steel spikes through his legs in order to pin him to a bloody timber, in order to suspend all the weight of his body tearing the flesh. All of that accompanied by six hours of asphyxia in which the human limbs are extended and the pain of drawing a breath requires the person on a cross to get up on their toes even to draw in a breath of air. So it would be very much like this. just to utter a word. To see all of that, to watch all of that physically take place, leading up to them thrusting a spear into his side would be absolutely unbearable to watch. Everyone knew the proficiency of Rome's executioners. No one living in the first century questioned their ability to put someone to death. So it's impossible to accept the fabricated theories that a human could survive the scourging, let alone the crucifixion and and the blood loss, and, and then the encasement in linen wrappings with 75 pounds of spices encircling his body. And then after three days of laying in a tomb with no food and no water to suggest that that person had just fainted and then could get up and then push a giant stone out of the way and then conquer the Praetorian Guard of Rome and fight them off and knock them out and then walk seven miles to the city of Emmaus on feet that have been shredded by nails with an open wound in the rib cage? That's preposterous. It's preposterous to think that that person had just passed out. But that's one of the common stories that's told around the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But if that excuse is not believable, what is? How do you explain a previously dead man walking and talking three days after he was clearly put to death? How would you explain that to someone? Obviously, there's the theories that came out that the disciples broke in and stole his body and then began telling the lie that it was resurrected. And then there was the other common one that we just talked about in which he swooned, the swooning theory. What do you do with the information that you have when you know that he clearly died and then was seen by hundreds and hundreds of people? We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. Here's what the resurrection does. The resurrection leaves zero gray area. You either believe it or you don't. 
But if you believe it, and it has done for you exactly what Peter spoke of, it has produced a hope in you. How do you explain that to someone else? How do you explain the hope that is within you to the degree that you can help them understand? Because Scripture compels you to do exactly that. It says to Christ followers, be prepared, be ready. Look with me one more time at 1 Peter 3.15. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give a reason, an account for the hope that is in you. So how do we comprehend it? How do you comprehend it? How do I comprehend this? And I don't mean necessarily all the details that surround it because you can very quickly forget the details. What I'm talking about is the why. Why did it have to happen? See, I'm persuaded that if you understand the why, you'll be compelled to speak much more confidently, much more securely, it's much less likely that you're gonna speak of something you're not confident about and that you're not secure about. But I'm confident that if you do know it, you're going to speak confidently and I'm in good company on that point. Jesus himself asked this same question. You might remember this. If you know your Bible, you know the Bible story around the resurrection. You remember the part about Jesus walking to the city of Emmaus? While he's on the journey to the city of Emmaus and comes alongside some of his disciples, he probes his disciples and asks them the exact same question. Look with me on your screen at this, Luke 24, 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? You've got the two components there. You've got the crucifixion and the resurrection, and, and Jesus himself is saying, Was that not necessary? Did that not have to happen? Your Bible demands a resurrection. In order for you to understand this, I need to do just a little review for you. The the demand for the resurrection started with a lie. And the lie began in the garden of creation when Satan entered that garden. Because he wanted mankind to join him in his war against God. And you likely know the account, but just bear with me with a brief review. So Satan comes into the garden of creation and he presents the temptation and says, eat of this fruit, eat of the fruit and you will not die. You will be as God, lie, that's the lie. So the Bible says that Eve was deceived and that Adam willingly took it. Eve is deceived. Adam willingly takes the fruit. They both take of the fruit. They both eat of the fruit and they accept the offer. And sin and death have ruled ever since over this planet. You want to read about that later today? Go to Genesis chapter 3 and just read Genesis 3. And you'll find that in the midst of all of that chaos and all of that trauma, God shows up. And when God shows up, he tells his rebellious creation that he will restore what they lost. Again, read Genesis 3 to see that. But the plan is going to be extraordinarily complex beyond anything that mankind could ever dream up. At the apex of human history, God the Father, in agreement with God the Son, 
would allow God to come to this planet to do what man cannot do. And even though mankind can't fully comprehend the, the, the creation, can't make sense of the plan, the restoration is going to require, it's going to require, it's going to demand a sacrifice. So the maker of all things, the creator himself, will give himself. So Galatians 4, 4 says, at the consummation of the ages, at the apex, Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. And you and I find ourselves in the aftermath here in 2020. In the midst of viruses ravaging our planet, in the midst of friends who are asking questions, God questions, in the midst of people making decisions for Jesus Christ, we find ourselves in the aftermath with people in our social circle in our world asking questions about these very things. Galatians 4.4 again, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Because the evidence is overwhelming, I told you last week, you'll see this come up on your screen again, 93% of the United States adult population believe that Jesus was really here. They believe he was a real historical figure, that he physically walked this planet. How he lived is also not in question. The magnitude of the materials that have been written about his life, they demonstrate that he single-handedly propelled the entire civilization of this planet in a direction previously unknown, a path that we would have never taken on our own. The least of these were elevated to a position of prominence Slaves were given equal position with people who were free people. Care for the poor and the needy was not an option, according to Jesus. It was a demand. It was a mandate. And women and children who had never been valued before that period of time are, are now finally finding themselves valued. And hospitals and universities are established as a result of that. No one ever in history caused a reset of mankind's destiny. And all of that based on just what we know about what he did that was written. But John tells us there were many things that he did that we don't even know about. Look with me on the screen, John 21, 25. And there were also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Now, those are all the things that he did, that, that he came, God the Father, God the Son, in agreement that God the Son would come. And when he came, he reset humanity. But now we find ourselves at this turning point. Here, this moment here, is the turning point. That same one who put us on a completely new path had to die at a specific moment. And we step into the realm where time and eternity merge together. Scripture says this, Hebrews 9.26, now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the very idea of God as a sacrifice is physically and mentally repugnant 
It's repulsive. I received a note from somebody who live streams New Hope. They, they don't even go to this church, but they live stream, and, and after the Good Friday services and after the Easter service, he sent me a note saying, I find that absolutely repulsive that Jesus would be sacrificed like that. Well, it should be. It should do things like that to you. It should be repulsive. And if you had been at the cross, you would have been repulsed. That reality of our human emotion, our human reaction to that, means that the price of that old rugged cross, the price of seeing him pinned there on that cross, it has to be seen through the light of God's expectations, through the lens of God's view. Because according to God, according to his own word, to be restored, a sacrifice is demanded. Scripture says this, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So if you want to be forgiven, there has to be a blood price paid. And the Bible is replete with God's demand there must be an atonement, and that's biblical language for payment. There has to be a payment. Look with me at this verse. This comes from the Old Testament. Leviticus 17.11. God was describing the atonement system, the, the payment system by sacrifice. To make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes the atonement. See, the life is in the blood. So only blood can make the atonement. So God's standard is this, by God's own demand, not by human demand, not by our eyesight, but by God's demand, the reasoning is this, there's life in the blood and the blood makes the atonement. That's why 1 John 2, 2 says, he himself, Jesus it's speaking of, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Big word, right? Big $10 word. Propitiation is this Greek word, hilasterion, and it actually means to be an atoning victim, like the lamb that was taken to the slaughter. The same thought goes with that. The atoning victim, especially, you'll see this next week when we deal with the issue of forgiveness, we're gonna reason through forgiveness. You'll see this, it's referring to the lid of the ark. The ark in the temple, otherwise he's known as the mercy seat. So Jesus is your mercy seat, your hilasterion, your atoning victim, and his blood does not just cover up sin, it actually takes sin away. The Bible says it separates your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. So God doesn't just cover it over, he removes it from you, but for that to be true, for him to take away sin could not happen only through his death. And I want to be very clear on this point. You see it as number four in your notes this morning if you downloaded the notes. It couldn't happen only through his death. There had to be something else that went through or went along with it. He had to be resurrected. The, the two have to go hand in hand. And I, I want to support that. Let me show you that from Scripture. Romans 4.25 says this, speaking of Jesus again. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. 
there's some, we're going to spend a minute with that, but there's something that God wants everyone to know on the morning of the resurrection. On that early morning, that first Easter Sunday, on that resurrection day, it was the most important thing that was communicated, and it was spoken from the mouth of angels right to human beings. Here's what happened. Let me show you in all the Gospels, starting with Matthew. Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here for he has risen. Just as he said, come back, come see the place where he was laying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Or Mark 16, Mark 16, 6, he has risen, he is not here. Or Luke 24, 5, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Pause right there before we go to John, because Luke gives us an insight. Luke tells us something about the emotion of this moment. He tells us how the disciples responded to that information when they heard it. Look with me at Luke 24, 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. That's the disciples. That's Jesus' own followers. They're hearing about the resurrection, and they wouldn't believe it. And that is where a big portion of America is today. That's where your neighbors are at. That's where some of your family members are probably at. That's where your coworkers are at. Resurrection. What? Why would I believe that? Why would I give that any credibility? We saw last week that 64% of U.S. adults believe that Jesus rose from the dead when we were examining the validity of the Bible, when we were digging into that. My question is, do they know why? Do the 64% understand why Jesus rose from the dead, why it had to happen? Now, let's go back to the Gospels. I showed you Matthew, I showed you Mark, I showed you Luke. Let me show you John, John 20, verse 9. John gives us an insight into why the disciples would not at first believe. It says this, For as yet they did not understand. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture. What did they not understand the Scripture? They did not understand that he must rise again from the dead. See, the two had to go hand in hand. If there was going to be a crucifixion, there had to be a resurrection, even if the disciples didn't understand it at the moment. So here's the implication. This is very similar to what we talked about eyewitness information last week. Even with trustworthy eyewitnesses, even with the women coming back and telling the disciples that they had been to the tomb, they'd spoken with an angel, even with that eyewitness information, it was not enough They didn't know why he had to rise. Your friends who don't believe yet, and maybe that's you, maybe you're watching this morning and you're not yet a believer. But I think by and large, I'm talking to a a large, very large volume of people who are believers in Jesus. And I'm saying to you, your friends who do not believe yet are trapped in a false notion that's very much like doubting Thomas. Their false notion is this, if I could see him, then I would believe. If I could personally see it, 
then I would believe that that is legitimate. But your Bible is saying, no, that's not true. Even with eyewitnesses that you trust, people whom you do life with, telling you, I just saw this. The Bible is saying they still wouldn't believe without being able to comprehend the why. So here is what the disciples did not yet understand, and it comes from Acts chapter 2. And Perhaps you've read it before and you've just blown past it, but I want you to understand the word impossible that's being used here. Acts 2.24, it says this, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible, it was impossible for him to be held in its power. I can't do that. You can't do that. If, if we could save ourselves, we'd have no fear whatsoever of the virus. There'd be no shutting down of our planet. There'd be no shutting down of our economy. If we could do that, we'd have no fear of death. But I can't do that. We're held in the power of death. But the Bible's saying it's impossible for God to be held. Let's back up to that verse earlier in Romans, Romans 4.25, and maybe you've transitioned from 1 Peter over to that. It would be a good idea if you do that right now, if you've got your Bible open. Go to Romans 4.25. You'll find the most concise statement of the gospel any place in the Bible. It's just 16 words, and it's clearly the gospel. Look at it really closely. Romans 4.25, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions, our, our sin, and was raised because of our justification. You want to put the gospel into one sentence? That's it right there. Really, really concise. Now, delivered over that's used here, this term, it's a judicial term. And it refers to the handing over of a criminal. It's, it's borrowed from the court systems of the first century and, and brought into the Bible. It's the word that's in your notes this morning, periodidiomai. It means to take someone and to surrender them or to bring forth someone who's been found guilty and to hand them over for their sentence, for their punishment. Uh, if I asked you this morning, who handed him over? Who did that? You likely would say, well, Pilate and, and the crowd, the crowd did that or, or the Pharisees and the priests and the scribes, they did that. Well, you'd be right, they, they did physically hand him over. But Pilate did not deliver him over because of our transgressions. That's what it says there. He was delivered over because of our sin. You didn't hand him over and I, I didn't hand him over, although vicariously our sin did that. But who committed Jesus to this? Well, here's a clue for you, and the clue comes from Jesus' own words. He himself said, no one takes my life from me. I give it willingly. He, he said that before he was even arrested. So we find Jesus giving us a clue, but then we find Romans 8.32, and it gives a great clarity. It, it clears the whole thing up. It says this in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son. Who's that speaking of church? That's speaking of God. God who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. Periodidiomai, right there, the exact same word. Delivered him over for us all. 
how will he not also with him freely give us all things? See, God loves you so much that he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over. God gave up God for me. For me. You could say that right where you're sitting right now at your home. You could say, for me. Why would he do that? Well, Romans 4 in the first half in part A of verse 25 tells you why, and I'll put it on the screen for you, just four words. Because of our transgressions. Because of our sin. So that you wouldn't have to carry the weight of your sin now, day in and day out, and in eternity. Can you imagine if Jesus had never died and never taken your sin away? If right now, today, you were living with the guilt and the weight of all the sins that you've ever committed since you were a child, what kind of a weight would that be on you right now if you didn't have any knowledge that you've been forgiven of your sin? So because of our transgressions, it says there in the first part of verse 25, Jesus was delivered up to serve a death sentence. Our transgressions, our sins, but you know that, you're, you're church people. You're live streaming a message on a Sunday morning when you could be doing lots of things. You could be watching Hallmark right now. But I'm telling you, that's only half of the story. See, praise God, verse 25 doesn't stop there. If it did, he would just be another dead man. If it did, they'd have to make up excuses about why his body wasn't in the tomb. He would only be one more well-meaning individual turning to dust. See, the last half of verse 25, there's the power in that. Not that the first half isn't, but the last half. Look at the 25b. He was raised because of our justification. See, the resurrection is the proof of the justification. If you deny the resurrection this morning, if you deny that, you're not only denying the power of God, with a dead Jesus, your justification is impossible. You couldn't possibly be destined for heaven because in order to be justified, that means the check had to cash. It's absolutely essential that the payment was accepted. Let me illustrate this for you in modern terms. Earlier this week, I, I went to a, a drive-through of a restaurant. My wife was gone and I wanted a meal. I was hungry and so I was going through a drive-through and um, the gal at the window after I asked for the things that I wanted to eat um, reached out her hand for my debit card and I handed it to her and she ran it through and she looked at me and she said, it was declined. <laughs> I said, what? She said, your card didn't work. Well, I, naturally my response was, well, try it again because I know my card worked. And she put it in and the little wheel is spinning and she looked at me and she said, it, it's not working, sir. And I said, oh yeah, that's right. There's a, there's a block on my card. I forgot all about that. The bank put a block on it and she just smiles at me and she says, yeah. Uh -huh. I'm like, I know what she's thinking. Yeah, right, I've heard this one before. <laughs> right? And the transaction couldn't go through. Well, fortunately, I had some cash with me in the armrest of my vehicle, and so I pulled the cash out and handed it to her. Indeed, my card really had been blocked by the bank because somebody in California tried hacking my card. But the reality is the transaction couldn't go through. The payment hadn't been made. If the payment hadn't been made, I couldn't receive the goods Jesus, in order to justify us, 
had to be sure that the payment was made. The check had to cash. It was absolutely essential that the payment was accepted. Now track this. Just put these two pieces together in your mind. Without his death, there would be no basis for the payment. The payment would not have been made. The price would still have to be paid. But without his resurrection, there'd be no proof of the redemption. The little wheel would still be spinning. There'd be no proof, no receipt, if you will. That's why the two are inseparably bound together in Scripture. So let me see if I can land this plane for you as we wrap this up. Romans 4.25, just look at it one more time. It says he was raised because of our justification. Jesus' resurrection proves that a justification is there that I could never attain in my own capacity. It's the last Greek word in your notes this morning, the word for justification. You see that, dikaios. It means an acquittal. You've been acquitted. How am I justified through the resurrection? And this is what you need to know to make a defense. This is what you need to know in order to explain the hope that you have, to be in that place where you can mentally reason through with your neighbor and your family members and your friends why you have a hope. If someone approached me today, I would ask them to sit down with me and I would show them Romans 4.25. You got somebody like that in your life? Show them Romans 4.25 because in 16 words, it just says, you got sin, you need a savior. There's a death penalty that was paid and the payment was accepted. That's what's going on in that verse. Along with Romans 4.25, here's what I'd say to that individual. Sin has placed every one of us on a highway to hell and there is no off-ramp. You can't get off that highway on your own. There's no off-ramp built into it except for what Jesus provided. So every one of us, according to the Bible, is on a highway to hell and we can't change that. And a dead Jesus would mean the payment was not enough. You'd have to stay on that highway so what everyone has to understand is that Jesus' resurrection is the proof, it's the demonstration that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' payment. That's why Acts 2.24 says, it was impossible for him to be held. Look at with me on the screen, God raised him up again, it was impossible for him to be held. Why? Because theologically, he couldn't stay in the tomb or you would never be justified. So one day, you're going to stand before the judge of all the earth. And that judge is going to make a determination about where you are supposed to be. The resurrection is proof of the purchase and God's going to ask you, where's your receipt? Why should I let you in? To which you can point to the Lamb, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. I say, there's my receipt. It's right there. That Lamb is my receipt. That's why the Bible demands that you believe that God raised him from the dead.
Romans 10, 9. Many of you know this by heart. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Without that, this may be new information for you if you're new to New Hope. Maybe you've just started live streaming the last six or seven weeks. This, this might be new to you, so please hear me on this. Without that, you are in no meaningful way a Christian. Without believing that God raised him from the dead, meaning he died for you and he was resurrected for you, without that, you're absolutely in no meaningful way a Christian. To reject it is to spit in the face of Jesus. To say that what he provided is not enough. It wasn't complete. That's why he can't allow anyone in who's rejected that. The ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate proof of the sacrifice that it was enough. That's why God can't allow anyone in who rejects it. So I personally am convicted. I personally believe there are a lot of people who think that they're destined for heaven. They think that they're Christian, but are absolutely not. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. It's a conversation that took place between Christopher Hitchens, who is a notorious atheist, a well-published atheist, and Marilyn Sewell. And Marilyn leads a church, um, I, I'm not sure I should use that term, but she, used, she leads a group of people, um, a very large group of people in Portland, Oregon, uh, a Unitarian uh, in, um, assembly. And in this assembly, she invited Christopher Hitchens in when he was on a book tour to promote his book. And there are hundreds and hundreds of people gathered in this auditorium and, and they engaged in a conversation about what Christianity was and what it wasn't. And in the midst of the conversation, in the interview about his book, Marilyn turns to Christopher Hitchens and, and says this. You're gonna see this come up on your screen. It's in your notes this morning. Just follow the thinking that's going on here. Marilyn Sewell said, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a distinction? Do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Watch Christopher Hitchens' response. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. If you go back and watch um, the YouTube of this, you'll see right after that statement, there's this long, awkward pause. And it became very uncomfortable as Marilyn Sewell is staring blankly at him. And her follow-up response was just simply, let's go someplace else. See, even an atheist, even the world's most notorious atheist knows that the death and the resurrection of Jesus cannot be selectively omitted because it seems far-fetched. 
Either Jesus did or did not rise. There is no middle ground. It's what it means to believe. And if he did not rise, we're just really pitiful people. That's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So this is where Christianity ultimately rests. It rests upon one great demonstrable fact. God raised the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you disprove that, you disprove and destroy Christianity in one blow. But Jesus did rise, and he was physically seen by hundreds and hundreds of people. Just before Paul wrote, we are of all people most to be pitied, he said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. It's not even going to appear on your screen, but I'm, I'm going to not put it on your screen for this reason. I want you to look it up later today. Read it for yourself. Put your eyes on it. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says that during the 40 days after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared not only to the 12 and, and to Peter, and to many of the brethren, but he says he appeared to 500 people at one time, many of who were still living at the time he wrote 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Here's what's significant. That claim could have been easily disproven in those days so soon after the event were it not true. But it was not disproven nor could the adversaries of Jesus display a body saying, here he is, he's dead. Do you see this? They couldn't do that because he was resurrected. See, these facts remain unshaken and undestroyed, therefore Christianity is indestructible. Please hear me on this. You will one day stand before the judge of all the earth and you will give an accounting of yourself. You may be sensing God nudging your heart in the weeks of this virus, this thing that seems to never end. You may be feeling God moving you. Right now, you can act on that. You can let go of everything that is weighing you down and have a full relationship of restoration with God the Father simply by claiming Jesus as your Savior. I recognize I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a Savior. You can do it in the quietness of your home right now. You're by yourself. Talk to the Father. God, I need Jesus. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I believe that he died for me and that he rose again. And I'm here to tell you this morning, based on that, on the authority of Scripture, you will be saved when that truth sank in, when those who had hidden in fear and had run to the upper room and locked themselves away, the followers of Jesus, when that truth sank in, they began telling everybody. They began spreading it abroad. They began preaching it publicly to large crowds. And we have just an excerpt to end today with an with a statement from Peter, the same one who said, be ready to give a defense for why you have a hope. Look what he says in Acts 22, 2, 22, chapter 2, verse 22. 
Listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, the same one who reset the trajectory of the planet, this same one, he says in verse 23, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But here's where the impossible part comes in. Verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter got to the place where he understood there is no separation between Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. They are inseparable. And that's why he said, be ready. Be ready to give an answer, to reason with people for why you have a hope that is within you. If you're new to New Hope, you need to know that we not only believe that Jesus died for our sins, that he was resurrected again, but we believe that he's coming again in power to rule the whole earth. And what a day that will be when our Jesus we will see, when we look upon his face, the one who saved us by his grace. That is the reason Jesus' people have hope. What a great God we serve. Let me pray with you right now. Father, our hearts are ready to step back into worship and to celebrate what you've done for us. And I thank you for the skills and the talents you have placed in our worship team, for their ability to lead us to the throne. But you've moved our hearts right now with your word and you've stirred us. You've reminded us once again why we have a hope. I thank you for the reality of this truth. So God, where you had to push and where you had to probe and prod and and do surgery on us this morning, I thank you where you accomplished that and how you use this to resonate to your people over the days and the weeks ahead, I, I don't know, but we trust you with it that you will not allow it to return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it out. So use it, God. Use it to strengthen us, to encourage us, that in the face of viruses and catastrophes, we are not a people who are shaken, but we have a hope. We praise you for this in the matchless name of the one who gave us that hope, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.